once you get to a certain level of uh, travel, as these guys are at the very, very elite level, you see the world map as a series of problems, almost like a jigsaw puzzle where you've got some missing pieces and you don't know how to connect them. So when you need to get to the, you know, the Bouvet Islands of the world, the Scarborough Shoals of the world, the Isla de Aves of the world, the Tristan de Cunhas of the world, these obscure and forbidden places, you can't just go onto Expedia and, and book a ticket there. There's no ferry services. There are no flights. So it's, it's about problem solving. And William was a problem solver extraordinaire. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode explores the world of country collectors, that is, competitive travelers who try to visit as many obscure geographical locations as possible, and it focuses on how this extreme travel community was shaken up a few years ago when its youngest and most flamboyant traveler, a man named William Bakeland, turned out to be something of a con man. Joining me in this conversation is the travel writer Dave Seminara, who sheds light on this story in his new book out this week entitled Mad Travelers, A Tale of Wanderlust, Greed, and the Quest to Reach the Ends of the Earth. Together we talk about how Dave first learned about William Bakeland while researching a TV show about extreme travel, and how this young Brit, who everyone assumed was a billionaire, eventually came to play the members of the extreme travel community against each other in a scam that has led some people in the travel world to liken him to investment fraud pariah Bernie Madoff. Dave and I start by talking about the philosophical concept of wanderlust and how it inspired the book that eventually came to encompass the story of a young British con man. Let's listen in. In reading your book, it feels like uh, this started out as a, a fairly abstract book, a conceptual book about the concept of wanderlust. And then this other character came into it, this William Bakeland character, sort of turned it into a mystery story of sorts. Um, so let's start with the wanderlust aspect of this. Why did you want to write a book about wanderlust? Because I wanted to understand why people like myself are not content to stay at home or, or, you know, feel the need to travel while others are content to stay at home. You know, for example, I have five older brothers as a family of six boys, and we really range quite a bit on the wanderlust spectrum. A couple of uh, my brothers are not super interested in travel, and a couple of us are very, very interested in it and have to travel and feel compelled to do so. I call myself a mad traveler or a pathological traveler. I'm at the far end of the spectrum. And then there's a couple of my brothers who are sort of in between. Might travel once or twice per year, but not totally into it. And I just, you know, have always wondered, you know, what's uh, maybe what's wrong with me is too strong a statement, but I've moved more times than I can even really count. I've lost count of how many times I've moved. I lived in four or five different countries, I think eight or nine US states, something like that. And um, I really feel the need to travel. I feel compelled to travel. I am happiest when I'm traveling, when I'm moving. I do not like being sedentary. And I guess, uh, not to sound completely narcissistic, but it started just wanting to understand myself a little better and what what motivates me, why I need to travel. So that's sort of where it started from. And then at some point, I read several years ago, an article in National Geographic magazine about this so-called nomadic gene which is DRD7, uh, I'm sorry, DRD4-7R. Let's just call it the nomadic gene. It's a lot easier. And when I read about that, I thought, I really want to know more about wanderlust. Yeah, there's, there's lines in your book. You talk about how there's a beauty and simplicity to the traveling lifestyle that makes it easy to be seduced. My obsession seems to always put me in the past, recalling trips and the future where I'm going next, but barely in the present. I've found that feeding my insatiable need to explore is no easy feat. 
When I get home, I often keep my toiletries in their case for a spell just to pretend like the trip isn't over. So do, do you feel like it's a genetic thing or just something that you developed over time? And um, and what made you think that maybe you could write a book about this? Well, in, in answer to the first question of is it a genetic, um, I get into this in a lot more detail in the book, but I'll just say from the research that I found, any sort of character trait that we have, they say, is something like 60% heritable. Something like wanderlust is not exactly like having blue eyes or whatever. It's a little bit more nebulous. It's hard to pin down um, exactly sort of what percentage uh, of, of something like wanderlust is genetic. However, there's no question there's a genetic component to it, but it's also somewhat environmental. In my case, um, my mom is a, is a super traveler. And in fact, my mom is 85 years old and my father is 88 years old. Now, my dad does not want to travel anymore. He's got a variety of different health problems, but my mom is a real gamer and she's constantly frustrated and annoyed with my dad that he doesn't want to go anywhere. She's 85 years old. And if you offered her a ticket to Timbuktu tomorrow, she would say, yes, she has an absolutely insatiable curiosity. My mom, I've never met anyone uh, who's more curious than my mother is. And I'm pretty sure that's where I got my wanderlust from. At some point, your your book shifted from... Yes. A, a more arm's length study of wanderlust as something that seizes you and seizes other people to sort of this mystery of this William Bakelin character in this community of country collectors. W was country collecting something that you foresaw as part of the book or did it just sort of creep into the background of the book and take it over? <laughs> I would say I would say the latter, Ralph. And actually, I like the way that you phrase that. So what happened was I started a, uh, a series for BBC Travel six or seven years ago called Travel Pioneers. And what I was looking for was, uh, my conception was, I wanted to meet some of the most interesting travelers from around the world. And of course, I didn't want them all to be country collectors. Some people were, you know, people who were scaling the highest mountain on each continent, more sort of adventurers. But I really wanted a sort of mix of people. But a, a few of the people that I wanted to profile were, I wanted to find out who is the most, who are the most traveled people in the world, who can really stake claim to having been everywhere or almost everywhere. So I started to find out about these country collecting clubs. Um, most traveled people is one of them, MTP. Another one is called Nomad Mania. It used to be called the best traveled. Um, and there are a few, a few others too. Um, Traveler Century Club is probably the most famous one, but those are sort of the big three, but there are also others. And so I started to get to know some of these people who are the most traveled people in the world. And um, I started writing about them and I thought, okay, this is really, these guys are, I'm fascinated by them. And I loved meeting these guys, Rolf, because it made my wanderlust <laughs> seem somewhat rational and sane by comparison. So I loved, you know, being able to tell my wife, hey, you know, I just, uh, look at this article I just wrote about Don Parrish. He's been to not only every 193 countries as recognized by the UN, but he also has been to every region of every major country. So meaning that, you know, all 50 states, every Canadian province, every Brazilian province, every Russian oblast. And uh, I just love this because meeting these guys helped me feel a little bit more normal. And I, I realized once I started meeting some of the world's most traveled people, I realized just how important a phenomenon wanderlust is and how unexplored it has been in print. And I read that Bruce Chatwin, who's one of my favorite travel writers, um, tried to write a book about nomads and wanderlust and he spent maybe like 10 years or so trying to complete a manuscript and apparently whatever he came up with i bet it was brilliant i would actually like to see it but it was rejected by his publisher and it went it ended up being unpublished and i thought wow i can't believe no one has really written a book on this topic but i felt like you know i was you know sort of just researching and researching and researching and i didn't have a central what i wanted was really a central focus 
or a, a central story that really illustrated wanderlust in the most powerful possible way. But in the meantime, I was just really just getting to know these guys, these I, country collector is one term, but I think that's kind of a somewhat of a dismissive term. Some of these travelers are very, very impressive guys, which we could get into a little bit later. But as I started to get to know these guys and I just stayed in touch with them, I realized that um, there was this incredible young guy out there who was also one of the world's most traveled people. And he was only 23 years old. And uh, all these guys who are getting to know were like, you've got to meet this guy. He's a he's a billionaire. He inherited like billions <laughs> from this great plastics fortune. And he travels full time and he's amazing. And I just kept hearing about this guy. And it was he, he took on this mythic sort of characteristic, William Bakelin. He's this incredible young traveler. You've got to meet him. So um, and then this started to unfold of getting to know who Bakelin was and then realizing that Bakelin was not the billionaire, the young billionaire that everyone thought he was. And as that story unfolded, I realized that, okay, this is the, this is the story. This is the central spine of the book. This is how I want it to take shape. Well, it's, it's interesting that, that, that there are stories here versus facts here. And in a way, it, it makes me wonder if, if anything is ever separated, separate from the story itself. Because when you think about the methodology for country collecting or however you want to um, describe this phenomenon – there's a there's a notion which you explore in your book, which is what does it mean to have been everywhere, uh, and there's something very granular and far flung about the geographical places that these people are picking up. And so, when you have the Traveler Century Club or most traveled people, what's the methodology? How do people set the rules for what defines the world's most traveled person? Every club sort of does this a little differently, but a lot of them have sort of committees or. Uh, sometimes they have meetings. They actually meet in exotic places to discuss uh, the, the points of how these countries and different parts of the world should be divided up and which places should count and which shouldn't be. So there's, there isn't really um, you know, a method to the madness. But for example, in some of the meetings, and especially the uh, ones that William Bakelin, the guy we're going to talk about a little bit more, went to, um, they would have actual votes. So for example, they would say, all right, should Ireland really be divided up into six different should you really get six different credit for six different things if you've been all around Ireland? Or should it only be four? And they change quite a bit too. And, con- and the, the points also change too when countries change. So like, for example, let's say you traveled all around Sudan and you were in South Sudan, but you were there prior to when South Sudan actually had independence. And then later on when South Sudan became independent, you have to go back again because you weren't there while it was an independent country. And also other other countries oftentimes change their province structure. For example, I think like India a few years back um, added an additional province. And so if you thought you had been to all the provinces of India before and you had, but then India decides to change them around, well, you got to go back. So it is somewhat fluid in how these things are counted. And it's, that's been going on ever since 1954, when I think was the very first um, time that any of these country clubs met. And that was, uh, I get, believe the gentleman's name was Bert Hemphill. And he did these pioneering uh, trips around the world. And he founded this Traveler Century Club. And he found that I think after having the club for 10 or 15 years, there were only like 40 members because there weren't enough people who had been to 100 sovereign nations. So they changed it around. So it was more like 100 places so that more hmm. people would actually be able to join. So these things are very fluid and they change from year to year, which means that sometimes, you know, some of the very top travelers, Ralph, they think they're almost done with a given list. Let's say they've been to you know, 850 of the 880 places, for example, on the most traveled uh, persons list. But then, oops, then they decide to add 10 more. And, ah, oh, you thought you were almost at the finish line, but you're not. So 
it's ever changing. And, and what these guys have told me is there's no finish line. There's never a finish line because new places are always being added. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned South Sudan because I've actually been, the one time I went to Juba and some of those provinces in South Sudan was with Charles Vili, who's your most traveled people guy. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, was, I was doing a story about him for the New York Times Magazine. That mindset, just like traveling with him was interesting, mm-hmm. but I didn't re- really relate to it very much because I guess I'm just not in, however you want to define um, wanderlust or dromomania, I don't fall into that that category, right? So what do you think makes the country counters, for lack of a better word, uh, unique? What, what, what mindset drives um, this desire to sort of keep score on where you've been and, and to go air quotes every place? Right. This is a great, it is a great question. I'm glad you brought this up because I would say that, um, that coming into this story and first meeting these guys, I was biased against their method of travel because I would say I'm more of a Ralph Potts vagabonding disciple. I more believe in what I think you do is that immersive travel of staying longer in places and getting to know places more. And so the idea of systematic travel and counting countries and rankings and all of this, it all seemed completely absurd to me. I have to admit, as I was coming into the story, I was biased against everyone who traveled Uh, using this sort of systematic method, as they like to call it. Um, However, as I got to know these guys more, I sort of really changed my, I grew to respect many of them. Although I don't think I will travel exactly how they do, and I certainly can't because I don't have the time or the money, I did actually grow to respect their mode of travel more. And I came to think that after knowing these guys more and in, in coming to see how some of them are really such good, good travelers, I really came to realize that there's no really wrong way to travel. It might not be my way or your way, but it isn't wrong. I mean, some people look, um, I liken it almost to like, you know, food and buffets. Think of it this way. You could either, we've all got a finite time on this earth, right? We all, many of us like to see the world, but how are we going to do that? You can either get to know a handful of countries really well, or you can get a little taste of many, many, many places around the world, like tapas, right? Like tasting a lot of little things, but not really getting sated or satisfied completely from one country or one region. And I guess that's sort of their methodology. I mean, I can't generalize because everyone's different, but a lot of the country collectors are more into the tapas or buffet style approach of having a little taste of this place, a little taste of many places, but not really gorging in any one, in any one place. Um, and I think that the, the mindset you asked about, you know, sort of how is their mindset different and such. And I think that um, there is an obsessive quality to it. So it appeals to this type of travel, the systematic travel, the country collecting. It appeals to a different sort of person. And I think someone who has a different sort of mentality. First of all, people who are very well organized. Um, and notice many of these guys are are people who are who are who think systematically in general. They're you know you I don't know if you want to talk about left brain thinking or right brain thinking, but many of them when I speak to them they uh, they're just their entire method their methodology and their mentality is just much different than mine. Um, there's also a competitive aspect to it. So I think sometimes people some people in life are much more competitive than others, and I think that some of these guys really love the competitive nature of it. Even if a lot of them won't admit it deep down, if you really, if you really get them to be honest, they do want to be number one. They want to be the most traveled person or they want to be one of the most traveled people, or at least they want to be the most traveled person from their country. Um, and I think it's sort of a natural, a natural instinct. A lot of it, if you do something seriously and you really enjoy something, 
it's it's a lot of people you want to be the best at it almost in the same way if someone takes up skiing or tennis or or sort of anything else if you if you really love something you want to be good at it right and i think that some of these travelers bring that concept to travel i think there's something media friendly for lack of a better word about this that there's something that people maybe even people who don't travel that much their ears sort of perk up at the thought of this because i know that i pitched the new york times magazine all all sorts of stories but like one of the first three times they sent me anywhere was with charles veely who i didn't even really know that well i think Mm -hmm. i think that we like the idea that you can compete in something like travel um and so as you got to know this group of characters, uh, you know, the most curious of which was William Bakeland, um, mm-hmm. did you approach them as an outsider? I know that you're, you're someone who's very much yes. into travel and wanderlust. Did you mm-hmm. sort of see them anthropologically or were you sort of an <laughs> aspiring competitive traveler yourself? <laughs> I like the question. I mean, I wouldn't say I was, I, I didn't approach it like they were, you know, apes in a zoo and I was, um, just looking from outside the cage, but I would say that I approached this community half inside of it and half out because I feel like I share, I share the same wanderlust that they do. However, I approach that wanderlust in, in traveling in a different way and I'm required to do so given the fact that I need to make a living and I have a wife and two children. A lot of these guys, especially the very, very elite travelers are retired. Um, some of them are quite wealthy, but not all of them were. This was another very surprising thing I found out as I got to know these guys. Some of them don't have much money at all, but what they do have, they spend it all on travel. I could relate to them. I could absolutely relate to them. Um, however, I was just not exactly part of their community, if you know what I mean. But as I said, after several years of following these guys and really getting to know a number of them quite well, I came, my, my respect for them grew, uh, you know, tremendously because I, I came into it, not really understanding the dedication and the hardship that it takes to really see the world very systematically as these guys do. I mean, just as a brief one, you mentioned Charles Veeley. I mean, Charles Veeley made it to Bouvet Island in the South Atlantic ocean, which is the most remote Island in the world. It's owned by Norway. He spent 72 days on a boat with, I believe it was South African Air Force and Navy personnel in order to be able to do that. And his wife, as I recall at the time, had just given birth. It's either pregnant with their child or just given birth. And Charles needed to get to Bouvet Island so badly, he spent 72 days at sea. And this is, and this is not on a carnival cruise ship. This is not on a not on a pleasure boat that has a casino and um, you know shots that you can drink and unlimited buffets and things like that. So these guys go through tremendous – when you really dig down to the very hard-to-reach places on the planet, these are not vacations these guys are going on. These are tough, difficult, arduous, sometimes dangerous trips. Yeah, well, you talked about the the sort of what characterizes these travelers. Uh, you said that you know a lot of them are retired. Charles is not. He was at the time that mm-hmm. I talked to him. He was considered a young traveler. Charles is wealthy or was. Um, a lot of it was sort of internet stock wealth. But what makes this character that you write about, this William Bakelin, interesting is that he is not poor. Like the perception is he's super rich and maybe a billionaire, but then he's also quite young. He has this incredibly prolific travel resume, but he's maybe 21 years old. So how did William Bakelin come across your radar and what did you first make of him? Yeah. So he came across my radar because I pitched the idea of doing a documentary on these world's, you know, elite extreme travelers and country collectors 
And the show, you know, the, my idea was picked up by a production company and that production company <clears throat> was trying to sell it to various different networks like the Discovery Channel, uh, BBC and others about doing a series on some of these top travelers. And the feedback that I got after, um, I don't know, several months of them pitching all these different networks was they were hearing the same thing um, everywhere is that there wasn't they didn't really have the key demographic that actually networks were looking for because they were all middle-aged and, and older white males. And there weren't any uh, women, there weren't any women among these elite country collectors, and there weren't really even any young people. And so they said, we really, aren't there any other you know, top travelers or really like extreme country collectors who could kind of shake things up, diversify things a bit? So I circled back to uh, these guys and they all came back to me with the same recommendation. And they'd already been telling me about this guy for a while, too. They said, William Bakeland, you've got to find William Bakeland. They'll love him. He's got this very rich BBC style, aristocratic British accent. Um, at, the, at the time, he was in his early 20s. And they said he's got plenty of time on his hands. He has no job because he's inherited billions. He's the heir to this tremendous plastics fortune, Leo Bakeland, who invented Bakelite, father of mo modern plastics. He's a descendant of Leo Bakeland. And... Uh, and I went back to the network before they could even speak to the guy. They were sold. They said, Bakeland, we, we want him. <laughs> we want him. And so I thought, this is great. We found the guy. He's going to get this show made for us. And uh, so I, I reached out to William, and he responded. We corresponded back and forth. He set a number of different appointments with me. I wanted to do a sort of a pre-interview with him, and he canceled every one of them. And eventually – I gave up on him and I circled back to the guys and I said, you know, Bakeland's not getting back to me. And they said, oh, well, it's probably because he doesn't want to be on TV because he's got so much money. He really kind of likes to keep a low profile. So I thought, huh, well, that's a shame. And um, the show was never made. But, you know, I continued my relationship with all these top travelers and I sort of followed what was going on, going on. So they'd be like, well, you'll never believe where William took us now. And I just kept hearing about William, but he wanted nothing to do with uh, with the show. So for a few years, he fell off my radar. Yeah, well, you mentioned Bouvet Island in your book. You talk about him rubbing shoulders with these other much older competitive travelers down mm -hmm. there. Um, and so for these people who did know him on a face-to-face -face basis, um, what was their relationship to him? You know, obviously these competitive travelers are competing with each other, but they also know each other and are friendly with each other. Um, he seemed a little standoffish from your end. How did he project to his fellow competitive travelers? Well, it seems odd to, to talk about men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s looking up to a 21 or 22-year-old, but a lot of them admitted to me that they sort of looked up to him and they really admired him because this whole idea of being very young and fabulously rich but also being so incredibly knowledgeable. The thing that these guys really, really were impressed by with him is now these guys are by the nature of what they do, they're geography wizards. So the very, very top guys, I mean, they can tell you about all the different, you know, atolls in Kiribati and you know, how many provinces there are in the Central African Republic. And so if you can impress these guys with your geography knowledge, you are really you're, you're something. So it's like they, they actually really looked up to him because they thought this is an incredible guy. He's he's brilliant. And he's not just, you know, he could with his, what their thought was, you know, this guy's inherited so much money, he could just be sitting on a beach in Ibiza, or he could be just hanging out with his friends and partying, you know, in Samos or, or, Ibiza, or you know, the Greek Isles or someplace like that. But no, instead, he's going to these really difficult places like us. So they thought, wow, he's just like us, only he's 30, 40, 50 years younger, and he's got much more money than us. 
And he was finding ingenious ways to get these guys to their travel bucket list places. This is how he really endeared himself to these guys is these guys, they see the map as once you get to a certain level of uh, travel, as these guys are at the very, very elite level, you see the world map as a series of problems, almost like a jigsaw puzzle where you've got some missing pieces and you don't know how to connect them. So when you need to get to the, you know, the Bouvet Islands of the world, the Scarborough Shoals of the world, the Isla de Aves of the world, the Tristan de Cunhas of the world, these obscure and forbidden places, you can't just go onto Expedia and, and book a ticket there. There's no ferry services. There are no flights. So it's, it's about problem solving. And William was a problem solver extraordinaire. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that they thought this guy was a genius. Now, he didn't have a blog. He didn't have a very public life about this type of thing yet. I think he had a list of about 12,000 places where he wanted to go. Um, yes. And so they saw him uh, down in Bouvet Island, and then he was helping organize other trips. Um, and so was his methodology different than the, than the, the Charles Vili's and the, and the Century Clubs? Was he on his own tack, or was he just – this very impressive young player in the same world as the other travelers. Uh, Yes and no. So I had, I corresponded with William for, for more than a year and I had a chance to ask him all of these questions. He was working off of a number of different lists. And so, yes, he wanted to complete the same list as everyone else. uh, All these other guys were doing, but he did also have his own list, which he called a Baker list. He had his own 12,000 place list that he was working off of. And he had a particular interest, since he's British, in former British colonies and former British territories. Um, So he had a specific interest in that, especially like remote islands. And he wanted to do it all. And he also had the goal, along with his mother, who he he was referring to as Lady Violet Bakeland, that they were going to become the first mother and son team to complete all 193 countries. And then the plan was to see all of them twice. So they were also going to be the first tandem to see every country twice. So he had a number of different goals he was working on. That, that seems so strange to, to, to see a place twice. And actually, when I read like the list of places that he had been or had claimed to have been at the time, it's just like, really, at age 21? So I guess there's something admirable about this guy who could be off at the business end of a beer bong on some island in the – in the Mediterranean with other young people. Uh, but it also just seemed a little bit exhausting and weird uh, that he was doing so much at such a young age. And so as he became a part of this community and began to literally organize trips for other people in this competitive travel community, how did the relationship among these people change? I mean, did did people meet his mother? Did, did people... Um, become his travel companions? How, how, did, uh, how did this develop as he became uh, a name figure among these group of competitive travelers? They never met his mother. I'm not going to give away too much about that, but there's more on that in the book, and it's an interesting story. They never did meet Lady Violet, even if she, <laughs> even if she may or may not exist, but they did get to know him very well because they did travel with him. In some cases, he was only organizing and opening the door for these guys, But in a number of other occasions, they were traveling with him and they got to know him very, very well. In fact, one of the top travelers, a German man in my book, said to me that William was like the son that he never had. That's how close their relationship was. 
And another traveler who actually um, is one of the other most traveled people in the world said to him that said of William that he literally was opening up new frontiers for them, that they were seeing that he saw the world in a different way, thanks to William, because he was making off limits places. He was putting off limits places within their scope of possibility. So he was finding out ways to unlock these destinations, but he wasn't sharing any of that information with them. He was only vaguely referring to his family's connections because people thought he's a Bakeland. His family gives money to every charity and every philanthropic organization imaginable. So they sort of projected all of these things onto him. They didn't know how he was doing these things, but they imagined it was all because of this incredible wealth that he supposedly had. Over time, as these people worked with William, there was eventually a falling out. And in fact, I think if you approached the competitive travel community today and asked them about William Bakeland, they would not say nice things about him. What happened? Uh, There was a tremendous uh, falling out, we shall say. But it's interesting. I will make one amendment to what you said, is that uh, some members of the extreme travel community still have nice things to say about William. They're in a minority, but they are there. Back up for a moment. So, um, you know, without getting into a tremendous amount of detail here, uh, because obviously the story is explained in more detail in the book, everything that people thought they knew about William Bakeland was not true. Almost everything about him. Uh, He was not a billionaire. He was not an aristocrat. He did not come from an aristocratic family. I traveled in William's footsteps in England to find out where he came from. And I went to his neighborhood in Birmingham which is the second largest city in the UK. And he came from a very humble neighborhood called King Standing in Birmingham. He was not a Bakeland at all. In fact, his name was not William Bakeland. And so he actually was a working class kid from a, maybe it's too strong to say a rough neighborhood of Birmingham, but a very, I would say a poor, a poor neighborhood of, of, of Birmingham. And, um, Slowly but surely, this began to unravel because William kept canceling trips. Now, one of the things that he was promising to do for everyone was to get them to Bouvet Island, a number of these elite country collectors. Now, Bouvet Island, as I said, it's an incredibly difficult island to reach. Charles Veeley is one of the only people who's managed to do it. It's and called the, the Everest. Uh, they, they compare it, it to is. Everest, apparently. It is the Mount Everest of, of uh, extreme travel. And a number of these guys, where they first met William, was on a cruise in 2015, a 30-day-long cruise. And the main point of this very expensive 30-day-long cruise was to really get to Bouvet Island. However, they could not land on Bouvet Island because the seas were too rough. And the seas are often too rough in the South Atlantic Ocean. So this is a common problem. Some of these guys took this trip two years in a row but were not able to land on Bouvet Island either time. So this is an incredibly difficult place to reach. And after this second trip where they weren't able to reach, William told everyone that he was going to get back on his own. He was going to get people there on his own. He was going to charter his own boat, which would not be on any particular schedule. So they would be able to just sit and wait until the seas, uh, until the seas became calm enough to land there. Because of course, if you do not land on the island, if you don't actually step on the island and touch it, then it does not count as a place visited. So even though all of these travelers could see it with their eyes, they were, they were close enough to move beyond to see it. They couldn't count it towards their list because they hadn't landed. So William was promising to get them there. And he took 
um, very large deposits for what was going to be this great circumnavigation of the Southern Oceans. And he was going to get them to Bouvet Island and a number of other completely inaccessible islands. And he took donations, uh, not sorry, donations, deposits of hundreds of thousands of dollars for this trip and for a number of other trips to very remote places, too. And one by one, he started canceling them and always with very obscure excuses. And so people started to get suspicious. However, at first, they weren't comparing notes with each other because there is a degree of secrecy involved uh, among some of these travelers because some of them like to try to gain competitive advantages on others. So they weren't really sharing notes about what was going on because William was very successfully playing some little groups off of each other, approaching a certain group of travelers and saying, hey, I can bring you guys to this place, but not telling their rivals about it. But once the travelers started to compare notes, and hey, oh my gosh, really? He canceled it. He just canceled the trip with you too. Suddenly, everyone started to grow suspicious of them, of him. Sorry. And Harry Mitsidis, who is the founder of uh, Nomad Mania, with some help from some other travelers, uh, essentially unraveled his entire his entire story, and almost none of it was true. And I think uh, some people accused him of being the Bernie Madoff of extreme travel, if you can uh, make that parallel, if people remember who Bernie Madoff is. And so how did this change the vibe among extreme travelers? Was, was, this, was this an irritant or was this a big deal? What, what happened next? Oh, it was a huge deal. Uh, when, when Harry Mitsidis sent out his infamous email, and I was on the group of, I was one of the first people who received it you know, a few years ago. When this story sort of unraveled, he the subject line of his email sort of tell, told it all. The, the subject line said, Apocalypse Now. And he he viewed this and many others as an apocalypse in the extreme travel community because the man that they respected really more than anyone, the person who they all thought was someday going to bear the, the mantle of most traveled person in the world, um, <clears throat> was a complete fraud, essentially. And what was really interesting about this, and I think one of the things that you know listeners will enjoy in reading my book, is that there wasn't a communal common reaction to this. The reaction to what William did really ran the gamut. There were some travelers there's, and who still feel this way who were and, and still are completely outraged and who are pursuing him in the courts and who want vengeance, who want revenge. They can't believe they lost so much money to him. And that he fooled them, and they're still angry and outraged. There's others who are somewhere in the middle where they were angry at first. They've already gone through the stages of grief, and now they realize they've lost their money, and they think, well, what are you going to do? Chalk it up to a life's lesson. And there are a few travelers, and they're a minority, but they're definitely there, and I think their stories are really fascinating, who really admire William even more now than before. And what I think, uh, for example, there's a Greek gentleman named Babas Bizas, who Babas is one of the world's most traveled people. Fascinating guy. And Babas says that he that William is still one of his most admired travelers in the world. And he says that the fact that this young kid was able to dupe so many of us and fool so many of us for that long, it's a it's an incredible talent. He's he, he's a genius. And they, and they still really they really admire him. Well, as this revelation came out, sending ripples through this world of specialized extreme travel, how did the man formerly known as William Bakeman react? Did he disappear? Did he deep? Did he double down on deceptions that he had? Did he apologize? What happened to him? 
yeah, it's a good question. So for a while, William disappeared, and he was essentially communicating through whom I call his consigliere, who was a good friend of his, who was essentially acting um, as as his sort of assistant. He was sort of hiding behind his friend slash assistant for quite a while, and is is this person was you know was essentially his intermediary with all of his creditors or victims, however you'd like to call them. And William was sort of in hiding. But um, I would like to think that, you know, that I sort of brought William out of hiding. William, you know, there's been a number of stories that were written about this affair, um, particularly in the British press, but also a couple here in the U.S. But William wouldn't speak to any other any other journalists. And for some reason, I guess because he and I had been corresponding since all the way back in 2014 or 2015, I guess there was some you know, degree of trust there that William decided that he was going to tell his story through me. So William didn't want to talk to most of the travelers, but um, he was telling his side of the story to me. So it was interesting. He and I exchanged dozens and dozens and dozens of emails um, over a period of about a year and a half or so. And his I cannot neatly summarize his position because it would change. It would change from one day to the next. On one day, he would be lashing out at all of them, all of these extreme travelers, and saying that he did nothing wrong, and, and others, and so forth. And on another letter, he would seem more conciliatory. And so he is an absolute wild card. And uh, there's no very neat and easy way to, to to summarize his response. But very quickly, I will say, did he apologize? No, he absolutely did not apologize. If I had to summarize his position, I would say that his attitude is that he likened what happened to there being a run on the bank. And he said that when you're trying to plan trips to these unusual places, invariably, a few of them will go wrong here or there. And he never meant to defraud anyone, but that all of these guys suddenly all wanted their money back on these trips all at the same time. And he was unable to essentially refund them. And but why would a billionaire have to worry about such trifling things, right? But the thing is, he wasn't a billionaire. Well, you you um, write about some of these exchanges in your book, and some of them are sort of aggressive and a little bit unsettling. And so, what do you make of the the different emotional textures of his exchange? and the different factual textures of exchange. And what do you make of him as a person? I mean, what do you think he was up to? What was he getting out of this? It's impossible for me to say exactly what his motivations are. But what I can tell you, after corresponding with him for a year and a half and being part of this story for six or seven years, is that I don't think William was a a born con artist in the strictest sense of the term, although he absolutely did con these 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 men there's no there's no two ways around that what i think happened was that like a lot of us he started out just with garden variety wanderlust he grew up in a very working class um area called king standing as i said but i traveled there and it was interesting because it was one of those communities that's quite poor but it's very very close to an extremely wealthy area called sutton coalfield so he grew up in poor circumstances in a, in a, what's called a council estate which is what they call it a council estate in England, which we would call public housing. But he grew up very close to a very affluent area. So I think that he became exposed to the world of travel at a young age. Then he found out about these travel clubs, and he got to know a few of these guys who were some of the world's most traveled people. And he wanted to be like them, but he did not have the money to do so. And so I think he – I don't think he's a career criminal. I don't think he was a born criminal. I think he was someone who saw an opportunity of 
hey, how could I how could I travel the world? How could I sort of be like these guys? And he sensed an opportunity there, um, and he took it. One interesting wrinkle to me is that after all of this happened, after this you know William Bakeland character who seemed so impressive and had impressed so many travelers, uh, after his story sort of fell through and, and sort of the, the con artist aspect of this story came through, the fact that he was not actually William Bakeland, he was not part of a billionaire family, um, you would think that as a story, it would be all about the fall of William Bakeland, but I happen to know that there's an HBO show being developed about him. Mm-hmm. Um, what What is that show about and how did he become a part of it? Because it, it feels like, at least in your early communication with the people making that show, they mm-hmm. s- they were still sort of taking his claims at face value. It wasn't really, here's this really curious con man. It was about, here's this interesting young guy who's traveled the world. So what's the HBO show about and how did he get, get, become involved in that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of HBO, but what I can tell you, having communicated <clears throat> with the filmmakers is that um, they no longer, they're definitely not under any misconception. I think they understand that William conned all of these people. Um, perhaps, you know, in the very, very beginning, again, I can't speak for them, but it seemed to me that perhaps from the very beginning, they might have been, you know, under a, some illusions that there was something uh, romantic about what William did. But no, I think that the, by this point, they understand that William took these people for a tremendous ride. And I will say that he, um, again, it's hard to speak for them, but I'll, what I'll say is that they, they thought that William was going to participate in their, in their documentary, but he started to make tremendous demands of them. And they were not prepared to meet those demands. He was making financial demands, tremendous financial demands. I go into this more at length in my book, but um, he never did end up participating with them. He did speak to them off camera, but he never did end up participating um, in their documentary. And I have not seen it yet. So it's difficult for me to say exactly. Um, but I think, you know, it's a tremendous story. It's a very, very interesting story. And I, I'm not surprised that HBO got involved with it because you've got um, – you know, this very smart young man who grew up sort of on the wrong side of the tracks, who somehow figured out a way to con some very, very smart and accomplished men, some of the world's most traveled people. And um, I think I think they were attracted to this story just because it's it's a great story. And for me, it was sort of an ultimate uh, you know, example of wanderlust and the sort of uh, this obsession, this sort of excesses of, of wanting to get to the ends of the earth so badly that you necessarily um, – you could call it come under the spell, shall we say, of a young man like this. Do you think that his con ruse was a way to get out around the world or was it just a way to get some money? Do you think he was – do you think he sort of ran oh. this con as a pretext to travel or as a pretext to be to find wealth that he wasn't born with? No, I think it was a pretext to travel, absolutely, because you know everyone whom I've spoken to and from having exchanged many, many letters with him, you can't fake the love of travel and geography that he had. And, you know, if you just wanted to make money as a, as a con artist, there's other ways to do it than this, than to be spending days and weeks on a boat heading to these inaccessible and remote places. You know, everyone, everyone agrees that the passion that he has for travel and for, and for exploration is absolutely real. So I think that he wanted to – he really wanted to go to these places. I don't think you could fake that. If you're just a garden variety con man, there's other ways to, to make money as a con artist than to trying to get to the Bouvet Islands of the world. Well, you entered this project as sort of a more 
if not academic, abstract look at the idea of wanderlust. And the book really ended up being about the persona that was William Bakeland, even though it does uh, talk quite a bit about wanderlust. What did you learn about wanderlust in the process of, of studying both it as a topic and William Bakeland as a personality? Yeah, um, a lot. But I found at the end too that wanderlust is an incredibly difficult um, it's an incredibly difficult um, force of nature, I guess I'll call it, in order to really grapple with and understand. Um, I think I knew even before coming into this project, you know, how what it, what it, how impactful wanderlust can be on people's lives. But I think even now, more so, I think I understand it even more that really wanderlust can dictate the course of your life. Um, when you're sort of stricken with wanderlust, I never use the term. A travel bug, by the way, because I think that a bug is something that's, you know, sort of trifling and that you get over very quickly. For me, travel is not a bug. It's more of an affliction. It's more of a lifelong, it's more of a lifelong passion. Affliction sounds negative, but I think I understand now how, how impactful wanderlust is on your life. And it can really sort of dictate the course of your life, who you marry, what your occupation is, where you live, where, where you don't live. And so I also think that it's, I, I'm less convinced that wanderlust, um, is genetic, is solely genetic too. I think coming into this project and having read the national geographic story about the nomadic gene, I believed more strongly in the genetic theory than I do now. Um, as I said, you know, earlier in the interview, something like perhaps 60% of traits are heritable. Um, but I think now that, you know, I actually took the test to determine whether I had the wanderlust gene or not. And I guess I'm giving away the answer that I did. I did not actually have it. So I, I, I was. <laughs> I hate to actually give that away, but the truth is, I just gave it away anyway. So I took the test, which took a little bit of doing to try to figure out, um, you know, how to get this DNA test. But the reason why I was able to get it is because a lot of people who have ADHD um, have this specific gene, and so you can get different places to to screen you for it. The Mayo Clinic is one of them. So I was able to find a friendly doctor who was willing to to let me do that. Um, I was honest with them, telling I wanted to do it for research of my book, and I think they had to write down some other pretext in order to really let me get that test. Hmm. And I found out that I did not have the so-called nomadic gene. So all of a sudden, you know, this idea of inheriting wanderlust, I, I didn't completely dismiss it because I know, as I said before, I think I've gotten some of it from my mom. But I don't believe, you know, now in wanderlust as a something solely that you're born with and can't get rid of and such. You're either born with it or you're not. I think some of it is definitely environmental and it depends upon your social circles and what you're exposed to. And somehow William entered into this world and he found out about these travel clubs and he met these guys. If, he had, if those things had not happened, who knows if, if everything would have been different for him. But um, I think that, you know, wanderlust is it's an incredible incredibly strong force. It's something that overcomes you. And I don't, it's been, it's, it hasn't been well studied. You know, it's an interesting thing. I sort of chart in my book, all the research on it. There was a lot more research on wanderlust, um, that was done decades ago than there has been recently. So I'd like to see some more research done on this. I really would. I would love to have, you know, a lot of the characters in my book studied, as I said, um, these guys would be absolutely primed for a really serious, um, academic and genetic study. And I would love to see someone uh, read my book and decide to do that. 
Well, it makes me wonder if there's a spectrum of wanderlust too, because even in the course of this conversation, you were talking about Bouvet Island and about how people, because of the weather, couldn't get on it. They could see it, but they couldn't touch it. Well, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not really a country counter. I'm sort of an anti-country mm-hmm. counter. I don't want to be a snob about it, but I just don't concern mm-hmm. myself with numbers of countries. But I remember once I was in Scotland and I had a chance to go to St. Kilda. Do you know the island of St. Kilda? Yes. Yes. And- in fact, William and the others have been there. Okay. They went on an excursion to St. Kilda. Yeah, well, of course they have. Well, I I wanted to go to St. <laughs> Kilda just because it was there. And then I couldn't, because of the weather, I couldn't go. And that seeded a desire that I still have. When you're talking about Bouvet Island and the guys who couldn't go there, I was thinking, wow, that's for me, that's St. Kilda. That's a place that part of the reason why I want to go there is that I couldn't go there many years ago. So it feels like even though philosophically I'm not a country counter, maybe a, some of my instincts make me part of this wanderlust that the country counters experience specific to, to St. Kilda in particular. So I would be interested to see what, what comes of that science for sure. Yeah. And as, again, it is like I referred to before, part of it also too is an element of problem solving. There's a place that you would like to go to and it's not easy to get to. It's inaccessible. It's difficult. It's closed. It's dangerous. And I think there is a strong problem solving element to all of this is that these guys, they like to figure out how to solve that problem and getting to that place is solving the problem. What do you reckon there is to be learned here? I mean, we, we sort of have this interesting um, sort of television worthy con job that's tied in with this sort of elite and rarefied group of travelers. Um, what's the take home from both the investigation of Wanderlust and the exploration of the William Bakeland story? I don't want to sound, you know, overly gloomy here because I'm a traveler for life. I'm a lifer and I have not changed my travel habits one iota since doing all of this research. But I will say that there are some lessons on the dark sides of travel in my book and the perils of wanderlust. There's really no no question about that. I think that we learned over the last year or so is that um, not having a chance to travel during the pandemic, that the problem, I think, with that sort of hypermobile lifestyle sometimes is that it makes us, um, if you have to go to, you know, trek Kilimanjaro or to go to Bouvet Island or Isla de Aves or the Scarborough Shoal in order to feel that sense of excitement, then how do you, you know, just enjoy taking your kids to an ice cream parlor on a Thursday night and enjoying a movie with them or just the little things of life? And I think that that's sort of like people have said before that, you know, travel gives you this dopamine, this sort of rush of excitement. And it, and like everything else I found out, anything in life, can, any sort of behavior can become a compulsion. It be, can become an addiction. And I think that, you know, travel is such an exciting pastime that I think that those of us who really love it do be, can become addicted to it. And then it can make periods when we're sedentary or we can't go places you can become depressed. And I feel like the last year, a lot of us have been depressed because we haven't been able to travel. So it's sort of like we've really sort of found that out, that sort of dark side of travel. And um, I want to say that, you know, it's not like travel is a horrible thing. I guess I'm just saying, though, that, you know, as I said, like all behaviors, it can sort of become an addiction. And you you want to be able to try to find that balance, I think, in life. Like with any with anything that's really fun, you've got to find that balance in life. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Dave Seminar's book, Mad Travelers, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. 
This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>